Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Aji, joined by special guest host, Demeter Petrov. Demeter is an avid runner and respects Mita for taking time off the podcast to prepare for a race. He's also a co-organizer of Helvetic Ruby, a Ruby conference that will take place on November 24th, 2023 in Bern, Switzerland. If you're in the area, links for more information will be in the show notes. Outside of work, he likes to go on long walks or hikes with the dog because spending time in nature is important. Demeter's first Rails version was 3.0.7 back in March 2011, when Prototype was the default JavaScript framework and Sprockets was not yet 2.0. March was mere months away from the May release of 3.1, where SCSS and CoffeeScript became first-class code citizens of the asset pipeline. But Demeter, today in 2023, how are you doing? Thanks, Aji. I'm doing great. You got me thinking about 2011 now. The year that Adele single-handedly saved the music industry. Probably. I think I wasn't listening to Adele back then. I don't think I was either, honestly. So for this episode, we read Active Record Associations in the Ruby on Rails Guides, version 7.0.6. Demeter, did you learn anything that surprised you? Yeah, a big one for me was section 3.4 on association scope. Another minor thing was the existence of has one through, which I've never used. But one can imagine that it has its uses. It's a very Railsy thing to have the same pattern in a lot of different places. So even if I hadn't known it was there, I can't think of a time in particular when I used it, but you can sort of assume that it'll be there because of has many through. What was it about section 3.4 that was intriguing for you? Looking at the guide now, the way they show it is you have a module, for example, my application, which is a top level module, and then a nested module called, for example, business. And there are some rules about the visibility of the associations within that module and outside of the module. I have contributed to applications that had modules used like this, but I don't remember struggling that much with class names. And so probably what happened was I added some namespaces as a class name argument to has many and never thought about it and didn't even realize it was a feature of Rails. Interesting. That section did stand out to me as well. And I thought about it and hadn't run into those problems kind of the way that you were saying. My guess was that just because of happenstance of the information architecture of an application, things that were nested into namespaces were just going to be associated to one another anyway. Crossing that boundary probably never happened, but that's just speculation. Yeah, namespaces make me think of other frameworks that I heard about or experimented with a little bit, like Phoenix over in the Elixir world, which has a concept of, I believe, context. The resources on these contexts in Phoenix applications talked about encapsulation and keeping some of the models hidden within the context. So I think it's a similar idea to this section here. I do remember the first larger Rails application that I started to contribute to at work that had been around for a little while it had a lot of these colon colons in it. And all of my early learning projects in Ruby and Rails didn't go too far into namespacing and subclassing and all of these intermediate ideas. So it really took me a while to wrap my head around using modules and classes to do that kind of separation of concerns. This was a pretty big section. 
of the guides, actually. I think it was over 12,000 words, the longest page that has been on the podcast so far. It took a long time to get through, but it didn't feel overwhelming like I thought it might. I don't know if that's because associations are something that we use so often, or if there was something about the way that it was presented. How did you feel going through such a long chapter? I was surprised by section four, which had the detailed associations reference. I consumed this type of documentation in the API docs and might have found my way to the guides a few times via Google search. But usually I look for specific words, specific association types like belongs to and look up the options. I have to admit reading the guides only skimmed through that part here. I noticed that the way that the guides are written for each of those sort of detailed sections, they repeat themselves a lot. I think that is playing into the way that most people use the guides, Googling something or knowing that Rails can do a thing. And so looking in the guides, dropping into the specific section and getting the information that you need and leaving. I think that's very smart of the way that this is structured to understand the way that their audience is using this as a tool. You know, I was thinking about the fact that the cool thing about this podcast is it countering the urge that probably every programmer has of Googling something, getting to a page and pressing the combination control F or command F or whatever does quick search in your browser. And thinking back to my early days in Rails and learning about these things, I don't think I ever read the guides or one page of the guides from top to bottom. I've returned to many of these pages, but only certain sections. I realize some parts of them may have been extended over the years, but I was really surprised to read some of the information. Was there anything that was presented in a way that you wouldn't have thought based on how you have been to this page before? A lot of the information around creating tables, as in updating the schema. Maybe this was there before, but I remember having a hard time, for example, thinking about where should the foreign key column be in a belongs to has many association. And I've hit this for years. And probably if I started the new Rails application now, maybe I would have the same problem. I would have to think for a second. That for me was a struggle for a long time. The thing that finally made made it click for me is that someone told me that the belongs to has the foreign key. And I just sort of fall back to that little phrase. And as I was reading through, the guides didn't describe it that way. And I kept thinking, wow, this was such an important piece of information for my understanding. Wouldn't it be great if it was presented in the guides? Then I kept reading. And in section 2.7, right at the front, it goes into detail about how to choose where to put has many versus belongs to on which side of your association. And I wonder if that's a more recent addition because it's such a common struggle to wrap your head around or if that was always there and I just never read the guides top to bottom. An interesting side of this as well is that it depends on what kind of code bases you've worked on. If you're going through a course, a bootcamp, reading a book, the concepts would be presented, but you would more or less copy an existing pattern and you would not come up with the structure by yourself. If you join a project, most of those things have already been set up. It's only if you have a side project or you're really working on new features in an existing application that you start asking questions. And for me, associations can be one of these topics in Rails that actually take years to do well and to understand well because they're omnipresent. 
the data model, the structure, the way that you set up those relationships are so fundamental to how you even think about the system in the future too. But the work to make the migration or to do that initial foundation happens once and then 99% of the life of a project, it's already done. I find that I have to come back to this page of the guides and API docs to look up migration syntax all the time because it's such a small portion of time that I'm spent writing code is writing that code. So it just never sticks in my head. At the risk of getting ahead of myself in terms of sections, there's one section there, section five, it talks about single table inheritance. I've worked on projects that were set up with single table inheritance, and I was surprised to not find much documentation here in this page of the guides. I was wondering, is there a different page of the guides that talks more about it? Or have I gotten all of my knowledge through trial and error and reading blog posts? If there is another section, I haven't come across it yet, and there aren't any links, so my guess is that's about it, and it's all through practical experience. There are several sections that we've encountered so far that are like that, that we know a feature of the framework has a lot more nuance or a lot more depth to it than the way it's presented in the guides. It's always interesting to think about what might be the reason for including this one in such detail versus another. Is it because the guides are maybe aimed towards people coming newer to Rails? And I know that the discussions that create the guides are all there on GitHub. I could go through and find that, but it would be a little bit of an archaeological hunt that I'm not sure that I have the stamina to do. My theory for this section in particular, STI, single table inheritance, is that maybe they want to discourage its use, especially mm. since in new versions of Rails, there are different ways to model that type of relations. That's really interesting. I think about that a lot with different features of languages, frameworks, Ruby in particular, with having a majority of your methods as class methods rather than instance methods. It's more difficult. It's more verbose. There's friction there. I wonder if that's because the writers of the language are trying to steer you away from doing that. And I wonder if that could have gone into the thinking here as well. Along those lines, it was interesting to me that there was so much time and space given to has and belongs to many, as I've come to understand that that has really fallen out of favor and it's not the suggested way to do those kind of relationships. Have you used has and belongs to many recently? Not recently, no, but I have used it on some projects. My use case for it is data that is static, so to speak. One example would be you're presenting regions and subregions, say geographical regions and states within these regions, or categories and subcategories as in genres of music. This is the type of data that would be considered maybe seed data. You don't usually create this data dynamically in the application. And so you may not need as much meta information about it, say the timestamp of creation and last edit or any other columns that you usually add to join tables. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. That is really a different class of data that you might be interacting with that, like you're saying, more static one thing about hasn't belongs to many that was interesting to me is the example of the migration code for that join table the recommendation that that table has ID false as part of its definition. And I had never thought of that or never seen that before. I was surprised by that. Were you familiar with that recommendation? 
I was, and I think it's by pure luck, having worked on an application where reuse hasn't belongs to many. And I probably either read this part of the documentation or worked with someone who knew to disable the ID column in the migrations. Do you find that that is a pretty common way that you have learned how to use Rails is by working with other people that have either uncovered or been shown different features and then learning from them? I would say so. Isn't that a fundamental way of how we learn things in general? This is why at work we try to pair a lot because it leads to spontaneous knowledge exchange. You're not actively trying to learn something, but you still learn it. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I feel like I've had a conversation with other folks several times recently is that belongs to in a migration, so change or create table, T dot belongs to, doesn't by default add foreign key constraint for referential integrity. And it seems odd to me that that is not the default where we need to specify foreign key true. I would have thought that would be what you would want the majority of the time. And so specifying foreign key false to be the outlier would be more of the way that I would conceptualize that concept. Me too. I'm wondering if at this point it's not too late for Rails to switch that default. Perhaps it would break too many applications or maybe there's a fundamental belief by the creators of Rails that some of these things should be controlled by the application code versus the database. I haven't done very many, if any at all, Rails upgrade projects. Have you encountered similar sort of changes as you're upgrading a Rails version where a default will change and things will break? A few times. I remember one breaking change that is relevant to this section today, associations, is the default of optional true to optional false or required true on the belongs to, I think it was. That was fairly recent, I think. Yeah. When upgrading an application to Rails 5, you could opt into some of the new defaults by flipping settings in a configuration file one by one. One of the configuration options to help you upgrade to Rails 5 was called belongs to required by default. It turned out it was accidentally broken for a few releases. So a few applications would get upgraded to Rails 5 and then perhaps upgraded to Rails 5.1 when this default or this configuration setting was fixed. And then they would start failing, but there would be no deprecation warning because the deprecation was in the previous version. Luckily, in my case, it was mostly covered by tests, although in one of the cases, there was an error in production. That's so tricky because that feels like it could very well be one of those places where you might feel as though the framework's test coverage is backing you up a little bit more than it might be, or there might be that loophole that you kind of fall through that would be harder to catch or maybe wouldn't be as directly tested in in your own tests. That's kind of scary. Yeah, to be clear, it was fixed, as they call it, backported to a Rails 5 version. But in that case, the application was left alone for a few months. And when we were upgrading, we had missed that minor version or that patch version that added the support. I did recognize the images that are illustrations of database tables and with the little lines drawn between the foreign keys to the primary keys on other tables to demonstrate visually what these relationships might look like. I think those are the same images that have been around since I started in Rails with Rails 4. 
those have had serious staying power in the guides. I think it shows two things. They're probably hard to update. And second, the data modeling knowledge underneath is still valid. It is independent of the Rails versions. That's really true. There's not too much of what is Rails in those, right? It's the concept of relational databases that they're descriptive of. I appreciated the way that the sections introduced each of the different kinds of relationships showing the model code with the belongs to or has whatever macros, often very, very close to the migration code that you would need to set up those relationships. I thought that was a clever way to introduce those concepts and make sure that those two ideas were tied really closely in the reader's mind. It's a powerful teaching tool that for many applications, when people are learning these concepts, they could copy and paste the code in from the guides, adapt it to their needs, and run with it. So, Aji, I have a question for you. Do you use polymorphic association? That's an interesting topic for me right now because I do use polymorphic associations and recently on my current project had the need for one because I wanted to lean into all of the methods and tooling that comes along with a built-in Rails feature rather than rolling our own version of it. The complicated part for this was that in this polymorphic relationship, one of the sides didn't actually have a record in our system. So you have a bill that can be related to two different services. One of the services had a record in our system, and the other one, we were just being fed the bill, but we still need to know what service it was coming from. My first attempt was to use a polymorphic association there because we wouldn't have to recreate a lot of what Rails gives us. We could use includes for eager loading. We can get the query methods for free with all of the collection methods and infrastructure that comes along with it. But Rails doesn't want to have a nil billable ID, for example, just having the type. That's not something that a polymorphic association wants to do. So I'm trying to understand, was it an accident that one of the records or one of the columns was missing, or was that by design? It was by design of the business structure, the reporting and such, that our system would not have that record created because it would happen with a third-party integration. The user would go over to that other application, interact with them, but then be billed through our application. We ended up not using the polymorphic association in that way. The concept of type in that polymorphic association that I just described moved on to a different table, and it became an optional polymorphic association for the record of the service that was going to be billed. It's hard for me to, to mouth code what this problem is to, to get your head around it. So hopefully that made a tiny bit of sense for everybody listening. What's your relationship to polymorphic relationships? An interesting one because I learned about them from working with more experienced developers. They had some opinions. One of the interesting opinions was about the naming of the as parameter. The example would be they have pictures in this guide section and they say a picture isn't imageable. For example, belongs to 
imageable polymorphic true. And my colleague at the time said that coming up with these names is challenging. And sometimes it can be confusing depending on which side of the association you're looking at them from. And so they had decided to use the name model because, for example, you could have a picture and it would be attached to a model. Back in the day when we didn't have active storage, you would probably represent the picture as its own model and then attach a file to it via some kind of library like paperclip. So you could say, well, a document has a picture and for the picture, it belongs to a model. So the model would be polymorphic. It could be a document. It could be a profile. It could be something else. That is really interesting. That naming convention is odd, definitely. I have also encountered issues where that kind of naming structure has created confusion within the team, even amongst people that know about Rails's convention for polymorphic associations, because it will create human language grammatical strangeness. The example in the guides of a picture, the way to get to the model is picture.imageable. And so you are asking for the imageable, and that's not really a noun. It gets confusing pretty quickly, especially when that sort of linking word is a word unto itself that you might use in that context. In my recent example, billable threw people for a loop because they would look at that, wait, is this the polymorphic thing or are we talking about some other property of that resource? Right. Another thing I've heard about polymorphic associations is that they're not ideal from a data integrity perspective. Some people prefer to have enforced foreign keys by the database. And so a workaround would be to not use the polymorphic association, but to have a column representing every type of associated model, associated record that you have. So coming back to the example of pictures, a picture could have a document ID or whatever other models it's associated to coming, I'm short with examples. Like a user for their avatar. Exactly. If a picture can be either associated to a document or a user, the pictures table would have a user ID, but also a document ID. I do like a good foreign key constraint and some referential integrity. So that does have its appeal. The thing that would make me hesitate about it is going away from what Rails wants you to do. How much extra work do you then have to do in order to make Rails function for you with that kind of relationship? Sometimes Rails can lock you into things that are maybe less than ideal because you want to lean into the framework. I guess that comes along with it being opinionated, right? And in that case, I think I stay with Rails and prefer polymorphic associations only because of the convenience that Rails provides. With all of the potential pitfalls or things to be aware of when using polymorphic associations, single-table inheritance doesn't overlap a ton, but do you find that some of those issues also crop up in that kind of context? The naming issue, definitely. One of the problems is when you have joins, I think that sometimes you need to write the raw SQL in your join statement because Rails gets confused. I might be misremembering, but I think this in itself shows how you can be or become an expert in some area, specialize in something in Rails, and then not remember anything about it a few years later if that code base is behind you. Or if the framework has moved away from that concept and you haven't used it in a long time. 
changing topics, something stood out to me in the guides. There was a section or subsection about avoiding name collisions. It got me thinking, is there a page in the Rails guides that lists all of the names that should not be used in a Rails application? If there is, again, I haven't come across it. That would be a super useful resource. And I almost feel like it should be in the code somehow. You should be able to call that up in a Rails console or something to get a quick list of reserved keywords. I guess for us or for the listeners, an idea could be to open the pull request either in the documentation section or following this idea of encoding this in the code and making it easier for a concept that was completely unfamiliar to me that seems like it could be fairly powerful, although off the top of my head, I couldn't think of a particular place to use that in any current situation I'm in, is the idea of the association extensions. I have never seen that in the wild. I had never heard anyone talk about that, but that seemed like a very useful tool. It's the idea of passing a block to the association macro that defines methods that would exist only on objects that are called up through that relationship. They called it an anonymous module, which is also another concept that I hadn't encountered before. Have you ever used association extensions? I think you stole my question. I was going to ask you the same thing. I have not used association extensions. I had encountered them in documentation before. I think that when designing a piece of code once, I did consider them, but ruled them out because they seemed like a harder thing to test. Although I have to think about it now, why I came to this conclusion. And the other thing is, I think I found a more natural or let's say a different way of solving the same problem. Sometimes frameworks add features that are not used that much. And unfortunately, some of these features do not get removed. Well, should we wrap up? So for next episode, we'll be reading Active Record Query Interface in the Rails Guides. If you have feedback or constructive compliments, we can be reached on Twitter at underscore tightly coupled and on Mastodon at tightly coupled at ruby.social or email us at tightlycoupled.dev at gmail.com. Show notes can be found in your podcast player or tightlycoupled.dev. Demeter, thank you so much for coming out and joining us. And everybody out there, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>